Hello and welcome to the Viasat Podcast. I'm Alex Miller with Corporate Communications, and today we're talking with Mark Agnew, Vice President of Commercial Networks at Viasat. Uh, thanks a lot for being on the podcast today, Mark. I'm glad to be with you. Thanks, Alex. Hey, hey I wanted to uh, start by uh, just asking you to give us a little bit of background uh, about your career at Viasat and what, and what you oversee here now. You've been here for uh, for a little while, I remember. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Uh, I started a little over 30 years ago when um, Viasat was a small startup, and I've been fortunate to um, to be part of Viasat's growth uh, and to um, spend the bulk of my career here. Um, so now I'm uh, responsible for uh, the broadband communications team within the space and commercial networks uh, division at Viasat. And uh, this this is the group that's building all of the ground systems for Viasat 3. Right. Yeah, that's, it's very fascinating work. And it's exactly why uh, we wanted to talk to you, because uh, we wanted to talk about ground networks. So, you know, very often when anyone's talking about satellite networks, they focus on the satellites themselves. But a, a satellite network also has to have a ground component. And so uh, so I want to ask you just a few things about that. Like, uh, for starters, can you just describe the basic elements of a ground system for a satellite network? Sure. On the ground, we have um, we have gateways. Traditionally, traditionally we call they were called gateways, which is where the satellite connectivity to the to the internet typically happened. Over time, we've made those smaller and smaller, and so we tend to call them satellite access nodes now to not emphasize the the size and more emphasize the capability. So that that's a key a key part of any satellite is the satellite access nodes. Uh, another part is the uh, in our networks is the core nodes, and the satellite access nodes are all interconnected with core nodes where we do data processing before handing the traffic off to the internet. And then the other piece is the fiber optic networks that interconnect the satellite access nodes with the core nodes. And finally, we have um, the part of the ground segment that sits in the subscriber's home, which is the um, user terminals. And uh, so altogether, that uh, with the satellite, that constitutes our satellite network. Right. Yeah, it's really interesting because, uh, you know, here in Denver, we're near one of the gateway facilities. And originally, we had the we still have the large, like, seven-meter antenna out there for Viasat 1. And then when they put in the Viasat 2 one, it was just so much smaller. And that's that's what you were saying. It's a satellite access node. So I wanted to ask you first, why why so big on the older ones? And how how would they get uh, small smaller? Sure. Yeah. So it, it's interesting that you say that. Uh, I recall when, when we started working with Wild Blue and, and the first very first uh, broadband satellite that uh, over North America that we used, uh, which was Anik F2, shortly followed by Wild Blue 1, those had nine meter antennas. Um, and that's about, you know, uh, for, for people not fluent in the metric system, that's about a 27 to 20 to 30 foot diameter antenna, pretty large antenna. Later on, we came uh, when we when we designed Viasat One, we reduced the the antenna size to um, to seven meters, uh, which is still pretty still pretty large, about twenty two feet uh, in diameter. The reason the antennas were so large is because those satellites, even though they were early uh, high throughput satellites, their capacity was you know on the order of tens to a hundred gigabits, and to terminate that amount of capacity, you really didn't need a whole lot of uh, a lot of gateways. Um, I think that uh, you know Anik and Wild Blue One have on the order of seven, six or seven gateways each. 
Viasat One, which was 100, over 100 uh, gigabits, had 20 gateways. Uh, but with that small number of a gateway, what you really wanted was reliability. You wanted when an equipment failure wouldn't cause the, the network to go down, and you didn't want to, you want to minimize rain outage. So they so the way that we built those is uh, we we built a lot of redundancy, and and we used pretty big aperture antennas uh, as I've described, and uh, and because there weren't that many of them, the cost was not as big a factor uh, as uh, with newer generation. Right. But yeah, you know, if you look at those, those facilities, they had, um, you know, a whole room full of servers and a whole lot of power going to them and a backup generator and a big diesel tank. And, and uh, these newer generation satellite access nodes just don't need that, right? That's right. Yeah. With, um, so with Viasat 2, um, which uh, we more than doubled the capacity of Viasat 1, and more than doubled the the number of gateways, uh, we realized that uh, we really needed to to take another look at the gateways and and make them smaller and and uh, less expensive. And that was when that sort of corresponded with our uh, terminology change to start calling them satellite access nodes. The Viasat two gateways are only five meter gateways. In fact, uh, they're small enough where we have one in the parking lot at uh, in Carlsbad in the back of our building. Um, that's one an active satellite access node. Uh, also, the satellite architecture was uh, was changed such that our single satellite access node going down wouldn't cause an outage. It would just reduce the capacity of the uh, of the satellite by a little bit. So we didn't need to spend all that money on redundancy. So shrinking the the um, satellite antenna and reducing the num the the amount of ground equipment, amount of electronics behind it, we were able to eliminate the large facility and save a lot, not just on um, on the cost of the equipment, but on the operating costs, the rent and utilities and maintenance associated with that. And um, I understand there's also so that I was talking about that room full of servers, and that's been moved uh, into the cloud, right? That's right. Yeah. Well, with um. With newer uh, technology uh, on computes and, um, and servers, we're able to accomplish a lot more in software that used to be um, in dedicated hardware or programmable hardware logic. And as we've done that, we've kind of pushed the, a lot of the functionality that used to reside in a gateway or satellite access node. We're pushing that into the core node, which resides in a data center. And uh, that's a lot more cost effective to to perform those functions on general purpose compute uh, in a data center that, that has conditioned power and utilities to sort of concentrate that that functionality there rather than have it be distributed at remote sites that are hard to get to sometimes and and more costly to maintain. And is it somewhat analogous to, you know, we kind of think that we're on the ground as cell phone towers, the more towers there are, the better the network is working. Is that true with these satellite access nodes? Uh, it's, I, I wouldn't say that. Um, it's not exactly uh, the same. With with cellular towers, you, you only have coverage when you're in within sight of a cellular tower. So it's really a line of sight uh, issue. And then to increase capacity, they make the um, sort of they put the towers closer and closer together, uh, so that you, you you can you can reuse the capacity more. We do that on the satellite with spot beams, and the spot beams aren't visible to the human eye. Those are they're they're uh, coverage areas that are defined by the antennas on the satellite, and the satellite is able to relay those spot beam signals from those spot beams 
into the areas where we dis- we determined that we should put our satellite access nodes. So our satellite access nodes really are, um, they can be in completely different places than where the users have, um, have service. But we still need a, a large number, larger number of them as the capacity of the, the total capacity of the satellite goes up because we're operating with a fixed amount of spectrum. So I guess you could say that the number of satellite access nodes is correlated, heavily correlated with the total capacity of the satellite. And the location of those nodes is more uh, for geographic diversity. We, we don't want them too close together. And, but at the same time, uh, we want to put them close to where there's fiber and, um, you know, where they, they, and where we can permit them. So, you know, not in the middle of a, of a city or a residential area, but tends to be in, in sort of more remote areas that are easier to permit. All right. Yeah. So, uh, talking about the, the other end of the, the line where you're talking about the, uh, user terminal, which is, you know, the, what a lot of people call the dish on the, on someone's home or, or office or aren't aircraft or even ships and, uh, other things that have a, a slightly different kind of antenna. Um, can you talk a little bit about kind of how those have evolved since the, the early days? Yeah, I, it was, it was interesting because as I look back through my career, you know, in sort of the early days of satellite broadband, uh, you know, there, a, a user terminal would cost on the order of, of a thousand bucks and it would have a, you know, a, a one meter or larger di- uh, antenna, a dish, uh, a big expensive electronics behind the dish, and then a big, you know, indoor unit or, or modem inside the house. And our volumes, the, the number of units that we would produce really wasn't large enough to to justify a lot of expense in miniaturization uh, in, and in developing custom integrated circuits. But over time, that's obviously changed. And we're building satellite terminals, you know, by the hundreds of thousands or even, you know, over, over several year period in, by the millions. And with those kind of volumes, it definitely justifies uh, the investment necessary to miniaturize and to, and to reduce cost. So, uh, not, but not only that, um, the performance has been increasing by an order of magnitude each step. I think that I mentioned earlier the, um, you know, the early Wild Blue One and Anik F2 satellites. Uh, Viasat designed the terminals for those that were used with those satellites. And those terminals, early terminals, had a maximum throughput of about one and a half to two megabits. Okay. And that, which was which was pretty good service at the time when uh, you know people were used to dial up. Over time, we've gone from that two megabits maximum throughput to a hundred megabits with our current generation. And obviously, uh, you know, at those speeds, we we needed to do uh, more than just um, miniaturize. We need to improve the processing and capacity, and we've done that. Uh, another change that we've made, which has been significant, is to is to take complexity out of the indoor unit and kind of push it up all integrated into the outdoor unit, which we call the, people are maybe familiar with the term TRIA, which is, uh, I think was originally coined by uh, Wild Blue and, and, and Viasat. Uh, the TRIA stands for the Transmit Receive Interface Assembly. And uh, our current generation TRIA has not not only a um, transmit receive assembly, but it has the entire modem in in the and a GPS unit, so it can determine its position in the outdoor unit. So it's grown a little bit in size, but it's it's shrunk in uh, in cost 
and it simplified the indoor unit to so we can we can make uh, uh, generational improvements to keep pace with, uh, for instance, home Wi-Fi and home home networking. And so that that's that's those are significant changes uh, in terms of the the look of the unit. It still pretty much looks like a satellite dish. You know, the the most cost effective way to receive transmit and receive signals to a satellite that's in geosynchronous orbit is still a, a parabolic dish and that which is still amounts to bent metal and so uh, so the appearance of the of the dish really hasn't changed it's it's inside of the boxes where we've seen the the biggest changes uh-huh. So a lot of people, you know, they look at that that satellite dish and they, like you said, they just see that piece of metal uh, and the tree is really the one that does the, all the work. So that's the thing uh, that's sitting on the on the end of the arm that's pointing at the, the satellite dish. And uh, it's essentially a radio, right? That's right. Yeah. So our satellites today operate at KA band, which is 20 and 30 gigahertz. Those are the radio frequencies that, that uh, get transmitted between the satellite and the user terminal. And so what the what the tree is doing is converting those high frequency those those um, microwave frequency radio waves into Ethernet packets, which are the which are the data pa- data units that travel around the internet and travel in our home networks. So uh, it's a, a lot of complex processing signal processing that happens, but ultimately the the thing that comes out of that is very very simple everyday um, Ethernet packets. Uh, we tend to still use coaxial cable between the indoor and outdoor unit because we find that's more reliable than, uh, you know, an Ethernet jack that uh, is not made to be weatherproofed, weatherized. But uh, but the data but the data protocols are identical to what uh, travels across the internet and through home networks. You mentioned KA band, and I was wondering if you could speak to why we use that particular frequency with our satellites. The main advantage of KA band is the is the amount of data that we can that we can carry um, at those frequencies. The higher the frequency, the more user data you can pack into uh, into that uh, the available bandwidth. And so, you know, early early satellites were they used C band or even L band for um, non line of sight communications really were data constrained. They were constrained by bandwidth and they couldn't handle the amount of data that we need for broadband. So um, so that's that's the main reason we employ uh, KA band today is because of the bandwidth. Uh, the other uh, part of this that I wanted to just ask about is the, the fiber optic element. So can you describe how that is connected to the network? Our need for fiber has increased as our capacity, the capacity of our satellites has gone up. It's not good enough for us just to land the the um, traffic at at the satellite access node and move it over to a. Uh, we need to move it over to a core node in order to process it, and then we have to we have to transport it to an internet exchange point. We're and we're talking about with um, with Viasat three, you know, a terabit of of capacity that's that's being moved around you know through space and on the ground through these various uh, satellite access nodes to data centers and off shipped off to the internet so the fiber component has has grown for us both in terms of the number of links which is proportional to our number of, of satellite access nodes and the capacity of those links and because of that viasat is been uh, building. Uh, we've started building uh, much more, much more rich uh, fiber optic uh, connectivity 
all over the continental U.S. And we're starting to do the same thing in, in Europe as well for our, uh, our, the satellite that we plan to launch over EMEA. Uh, so it has, the fiber optic uh, component has become much more significant for us and uh, a, a much larger part of our network. Another really interesting element to this that's got a kind of a cool name is dark fiber. What's what's that all about? So dark fiber refers to uh, fiber optic strands that are on a in a fiber optic cable that um, are unused, and so they're, they they aren't lit up. They're not carrying any any signals, and hence they're dark. Dark fiber is interesting because it's a lot less expensive because you're not paying somebody else to operate the equipment that that is used to transmit data across the fiber and because it's unused at least when you know when you when you buy it it tends to be less expensive uh, so as our fiber optic needs have grown we've started to acquire dark fiber and we have uh, built the expertise to light that fiber up ourselves so we're actually going to become uh, a fiber fiber optic uh, operator as well as a satellite operator as a necessary part of growing our satellite network. Wow. Yeah, it's it's definitely a, a whole other element because, yeah, I think of Visat very much as a satellite company, but the, there's, there's a lot more to it. So, um, you know, I know one of the things that is probably occupying uh, all of your time right now is the is the ground network for Viasat 3, which is our uh, global constellation uh, of three satellites that's uh, slated to, to start launching in 2021. So I was wondering, and I know we can't talk too much about the specifics of this, but what, what can you tell us about uh, what the Viasat 3 ground network is going to be like? Yeah, uh, so Viasat three is really it's it's really exciting for us. Uh, it's the culmination, I think, of twenty years of satellite communications. Viasat uh, innovating in uh, satellite communications and broadband uh, satellite communications. So one of the really innovative things about Viasat three is that we have so much capacity. We're, we're really we're breaking the terabit barrier in satellite capacity, which is you know, 10 times more than we did with Viasat, Viasat 1, and more than four times more than we've got with Viasat 2, and at least two times more than anybody else is even talking about. So with all that capacity, though, comes uh, a pretty large ground segment uh, to be able to deliver service, you know, and, and convert the satellite capacity into useful data. And so along the lines of what I've already described, we've put a lot of emphasis into miniaturizing the satellite access nodes, which uh, will look like very, very small, say, gateways. Uh, and uh, there are a lot of them. So we've, we've put a lot of emphasis on highly integrating the electronics into those. They'll essentially look like a, the electronics look like a utility box uh, next to a relatively small satellite antenna. So that simplifies permitting as well as um, installation and uh, operation of the of each satellite node. There will be hundreds of those satellite nodes operating with each with each satellite. And with Biosat 3, we're building, as you may know, we're building three nearly identical satellites uh, that will provide global coverage. The first one is um, launching next year over um, and will provide service over the Americas. And so we're pretty far along on the ground segment uh, for that satellite. 
the uh, European satellite will launch about six months after that. And so we're, we're almost as far along in Europe uh, with uh, the ground segment for that one. And then um, about a year after that, we'll launch over Asia-Pac, and we're starting to build out the network for that satellite, which will primarily be in Australia. In addition to being um, a pretty big design effort to miniaturize and uh, develop the the ground for this new um, satellite, it's also a pretty big deployment effort to acquire the property that that's needed and the fiber optics uh, connectivity that's needed to be able to install the ground network. Uh, And that's been a pretty big focus for the team and uh, we're making great progress on it. So uh, I think it's going to be in the next year, we're going to be start to see the fruit of that labor as we bring everything together and start to test out the network. Wow. Yeah. It's a, it's a huge project, I'm sure. And it sounds like just a, a continued evolution on improving uh, the, the network that's on the ground. So um, the last thing I wanted to ask you about, uh, Mark, is is um, a little bit about, uh, you know, we were talking about the user terminals and and how, uh, you know, you can you can build a pretty inexpensive one that, that can sit on a house or, you know, a, a, an office. And, and the reason for that is that our satellites are in geosynchronous orbit so that the satellites orbit at exactly the same speed as the Earth's rotation, making it appear stationary in the sky. So this allows you to point a satellite at a particular place on the ground and it'll always cover that area. But if you've got a satellite in lower Earth orbit, and there are a lot of those coming online these days, it takes a completely different kind of antenna. Can you explain the difference there? Yeah, sure. There's an interesting challenge with uh, low Earth orbit satellites, and that is uh, you're essentially having to track the satellite as it screams across the sky. And uh, to put things in context, some of the, the LEO constellations that are being talked about now, a satellite will pass from horizon to horizon in less than three minutes. Okay, that's how fast, to, I mean, if you watch an airplane, that's about the speed of an airplane uh, or a, a commercial jet fly across the sky. Uh, that's, uh, but the satellites obviously have quite a bit higher in altitude. Um, so it's really screaming across, and uh, the challenge for a user terminal is really to be able to follow that satellite to direct, you know, direct its uh, its beams, uh, radio wave beams, at that satellite as it's crossing the sky, and then when it's once the sat- that satellite is passed, uh, to find the next one and do it all over again, and to do that in a way that's transparent to the end user, so that there's no glitches in the service connectivity. Uh, and continuity. Uh, so, so those, those those some interesting challenges. Those kinds of things have been um, been around for a long time, mostly associated with imagery satellites. If you if you think about like where does the images for Google Earth come from, or for for other mapping applications come from the high high resolution images, uh, those come from imaging satellites that are doing what I just what I described, screaming across the sky, but taking pictures the whole time and then dumping those pictures down to a terminal on the ground that's following them. Uh, and usually those terminals are large because there are not that many of them, and they, they tend to have mechanical mechanically steered dishes. So the technology has been around for a while, but when you talk about wanting to put it into a consumer household, obviously a big, large antenna that's constantly pointing uh, across the sky, steering across the sky is not very desirable. So uh, the challenge for these new LEO satellites is to come up with a very small 
an inexpensive phased array antenna. Phased arrays tend, can be flat uh, antennas that, that are electronically steered. And the electronic steering, beam forming and steering, allows that uh, flat antenna to track the satellite as well as, uh, as a mechanically uh, steered antenna would, although a lot faster. And so electronically steered antenna can perform a satellite handover in, in a few uh, fractions of a second, whereas a mechanically steered one would have to slew you know, back to uh, its starting point, and that would cause an interruption of a, of a second or two. So, uh, so the biggest challenge with LEOs is really coming up with this cost-effective phased array antenna that um, that provides the performance that um, that was would be needed to provide a high quality service, and that's something that Viasat's been working on uh, for quite a while now. Um, we've been working on that higher cost versions of that for airplanes, where it's the airplane that's moving and not the satellite that's moving. The airplane is flying across the sky and aiming at a satellite that's sta- that's stationary, and so our uh, our effort now is to. Uh, reduce the cost and complexity of those airborne antennas so that they can be used for our consumer business. It's it's pretty fascinating and and uh, uh, and a pretty big engineering challenge, I guess, to get those phased array antennas uh, you know working and and also uh, have them be able to be inexpensive enough to produce at scale. Yeah, that's right. And you know, Vice, that's not the only one working on that. And uh, we're not wed to our own uh, our own designs, but we, but we do realize that uh, we have expertise and. Uh, that uh, there's going to be a big market there, whether it's for our own satellites or for other people's. So we're actively pursuing that. All right. Well, Mark Agnew, thanks so much for taking the time to, to walk us through uh, some of the, the way these ground ground systems work for the, our satellite networks. And uh, best of luck uh, on the Viasat 3 project. I know it's a, it's a big one. And Yeah. Thank you very much, Alex. It's been a pleasure. And I look forward to uh, celebrating the, the launch of the first Viasat 3 with you. All right. Thanks for listening to the Viasat Podcast. If you know someone you think would be interested in what you've heard on this episode, please share. You can always find the latest episode on our blog at corpblog.viasat.com. And you can subscribe at Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, just about anywhere you get your podcasts. Podcasts.